Neil, thank you very much for joining me again on the podcast today. I'm very much looking to uh, talk to you about uh, your views on on labor. I know this is something you've looked at, you're looking at very closely and, and are addressing. Um, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Always a pleasure to be here. You know, um, one thing I would really want to focus in on today is that it seems like um, in, in all industries, but I, I know especially in our industries, um, uh, business owners and hiring managers are consumed with with filling roles and 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 acquiring talent and and just acquiring bodies in some cases. And and we, I I get this feeling that we're maybe forgetting that um, we already have some quality workers on staff already, and that perhaps if we can educate them and develop them, they can become more effective, more efficient, and maybe even eliminate the need for the these roles. It's kind of sort of like you take up your basic Honda Civic and you beef it up and you make it into a street racer. And I think yeah. there's that potential um, with, a, with a lot of the people that we have on staff already. I think they have street racer potential. Uh, yeah. what, what are your thoughts on that? Everybody has potential, you know, and um, the question is, is your organization one where they can really grow and thrive to be the best version of themselves? Um, and the answer is usually, well, we're too busy to do training or development. Well, and so that tells me that we're wasting a lot of potential as a result. And um, I understand the frustrations. <clears throat> I've hired all these guys the same as everybody who's listening to this podcast. But the reality is when we take time to develop people, they perform way better than they present um, mm -hmm. maybe at the job interview. Mm -hmm. what, what steps, if I'm an owner or a hiring manager, or even in, in some cases, if I'm a, a team leader or a, a supervisor, what are some of the initial steps I can take? What would you recommend in and how I can start to develop the talent I already have on hand? Well, I would say the first and most important thing is to set a budget. So this, of course, could mean some financial resources, but more specifically, time resources. Mm -hmm. so, so when people tell me, hey, I don't know where to start with training because we're so busy, well, that's, that's the biggest problem, right? Mm -hmm. Not you don't know how to train or you don't know what to train, but you don't know where you're going to find the time for training. So very simply, I would allocate and I would do it by uh, organizational hierarchy. So frontline people, they qualify for one hour a week of training. Mm -hmm. And, and mid-level managers, they need to be training twice as much, two hours a week, right? And we expect our, our senior leader to be doing some sort of professional development that's significant. Maybe that's a four hour a week type of learning, if we're going to be a real learning and developing organization. Mm -hmm. But whatever that number is, you got to set that budget first. And then once you've allocated the time and some financial resources, it becomes much, much easier to do that type of that training and development. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the people who I see uh, every year who are learning the most and are growing the most are the ones who are attending events like like the upcoming executive summit, right? Mm -hmm. And those people don't end up uh, in Florida by accident. They know that every year they're going to attend a major industry event to get the best bang for their buck. And they're going to give up three days of their summer, right? For, mm -hmm. for them and their team. 
and they've budgeted that time and, and those resources well ahead of even the, the registration opening. And so I think that that is really the first key to success. And when you talk to them, they'll tell you, man, we're at it every year. We don't always know where or when or what, but if it's, if it's professional development, it's on our calendar, it's in our budgets to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And as a result, their businesses continue to thrive. We got to take that same concept all the way to the front line. Mm-hmm. Well, time allocation, obviously a huge, huge issue. What are some of the other steps after that that they can take to um, begin to develop those, re- those internal resources? Yeah, so then you have to figure out what are we going to train people on? What are the most specific, important steps by position um, that that really you know enable our organization to success? And I would say that something like safety training isn't really growth and development, right? Safety training is making sure that nobody ends up in the hospital room. Mm-hmm. Ultra, ultra important. Got to have it, definitely, right? Mm-hmm. But it's also the bare minimum. Mm-hmm. And so the, the growth and development stage is how do you actually run a snowblower efficiently? Um, not just safely, but efficiently around the site. How do you manage materials so we're not polluting the environment by spreading too much salt? Mm-hmm. Or, or make sure we're not over applying to track things into the building, right? Mm-hmm. Helping people understand how to um, uh, build quality team relationships so that everybody works coherently as a team and you don't pull up to the site and there's eight shovelers huddled in the corner and they forgot about, you know, 60% of the sidewalks. Here. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, <clears throat> we used to do training and development <clears throat> on our equipment. So Caterpillar would come in and they would teach us the advanced functions like rim pull control and, and return to dig functions that would save our operators time in the field. And, and this is stuff that the, machines the manufacturers have already provided but our operators didn't know how to utilize that right Mm -hmm. and so you need to build out a platform of what's most important to train people on on my list for snow removal uh, in addition to those really specific things we got to talk about hydration and nutrition Mm -hmm. and sleep management to manage overall well-being not from a safety perspective although it's really important but from a longevity of being able to work perspective. We got to talk about how to plan your family life and your social life around the, the um, difficulty of winter. Mm-hmm. And it's really having a conversation around expectations. And the ones who we trained really well on this would stick with us year after year. The ones who missed that memo because we skipped over this training, they would be surprised at how difficult and demanding the work was and burn out really quickly. Right. Right. Um, and so that's all the types of training, um, a lot of soft skills. And then how are you going to do it? Uh, we used to do it at case all in person. And that was pretty good, except that some guys wouldn't show up or they'd get hired after the fact mm-hmm. and we had, we were too big. And so then we would do multiple in-person trainings, but that was just exhausting and then we tried to train other people to train, but we found out that it was really hard to do that. And they wouldn't train like we were training. Mm-hmm. And so um, then we moved to video format and we recorded ourselves and that was awesome, but it was super expensive. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, after my time at case, one of the reasons I built grow the bench 
with Bill was to be able to offer this training super affordably for people. And so, um, you know, we'll do boot camps for, for companies and help them integrate some of their own personal training as well. That's company specific just for their people. And uh, that's one great resource. And I know there's a ton of people who are using the ASCA online training as well as a way to reward their top level people with some higher level education. I want to take a step back. You had mentioned, I think, an important fact here about, you know, um, the importance of uh, going a step beyond with the equipment training and learning about the functions and whatnot of certain pieces of equipment that maybe maybe are overlooked and can be critical out in the field. And you talked about maybe um, bringing CAD in or a dealer in. And I'm guessing that bringing in the manufacturer rep or bringing in a dealer rep to help with that training. I'm guessing there's little to no cost in that also for the, for the uh, contractor. Yeah, there never was for us. I mean, one of the advantages of um, investing with a specific partner uh, and, and only running one type of machine was that they were super invested in our success. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, we had the privilege where cat would fly up, you know, some engineers to help us out. But if that's, uh, it, well, first of all, I would see if that's possible because you'd be, you'd be shocked um, at what some of these manufacturers will do. Even if you only own a couple pieces of equipment, mm-hmm. um, they're, they're highly invested in success. But even if you find that, that it's difficult to get on their radar, then go to the, the local dealer, right. Mm-hmm. And see who they have. And, and these are, these are the guys who service the machines. They know them inside and out, right? Um, for instance, uh, Fisher has a, a plow school. And you can mm. actually send your reps up to Rockland, Maine um, to go through service tech training at oh, their cool. location. So maybe they won't send down um, somebody just for you because uh, the timing doesn't work out or whatever. But that doesn't mean that you're you're out of luck there. There's lots of opportunities for any size. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent points. Um, so, okay. So you've, um, you've set aside the time you've made some um, strategic choices on the topics you're going to look at. What's another point that can help to really turn that, that your existing workforce into that, that street racer. Well, then it's, then it's just the consistency, right? So, um, you know, I, I like to compare it to uh, working out or being on a diet. It's really not, it's really not the plan that matters. It's how many days in a row do you execute that plan, Mm -hmm. right? And this is where most training programs fall apart is you go back to, well, we're too busy, you know? Yeah, we, we allocate an hour, we pay an hour for training, but um, we make it optional or it snowed a whole bunch. So we put it on pause Mm -hmm. and listen, we need to, make adjustments for the weather for sure. But when I look back at at a training plan, if you've skipped three out of four weeks, then you can't be surprised that it didn't succeed. Mm -hmm. You know, and and I'm guessing altogether, um, this is probably, uh, there's probably a return on investment here that a lot of contractors don't realize when they're setting up and, um, you know, paying close attention to how they're training, um, that the return is, is, is pretty substantial. It's massive. I mean, here's, it's really hard to determine what exactly is the ROI, Mm -hmm. but 
let me throw out a couple of numbers that maybe help put it in perspective. When people um, get promoted or take a different position, they leave their organization 93% of the time to do it. Mm. So when somebody feels that they're ready for a new challenge, 93% of the time they're leaving their company. Mm-hmm. Meaning that the company hadn't provided the growth path for them or the development for them to get there. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, the cost of, of turnover is really expensive. It's estimated to be between one and a half to five times the annual salary of the employee. Wow. Because we look at when that person walks out the door, we're losing all of the investment in training, of course, but they leave with institutional knowledge about how things work at our company. They leave with customer knowledge. They may leave with some actual customers potentially, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then when we look at the hiring costs, we have to go publish job ads. Those job boards are more and more expensive every day, it seems, right? Mm -hmm. Then we sink in all this time of interviewing and hiring. And then once we finally hire somebody, we pay for all their uniforms and PPE and business cards and maybe a laptop or whatever, whatever they need to do their job. Mm-hmm. And then we have to think about how long does it take that person who is new on the job to be really successful? Mm-hmm. If we're talking about a sales rep, we're talking about three to six months. Right. Easily. Right. Even if it's a frontline snow shoveler, how many storms do they have to go work for you? before they really start to understand the site and know the nuance, before they really know how to prevent customer callbacks or give that extra above and beyond service that the old guy who had been with us for a year used to do, right? Or to, to not cause a bunch of administrative hangups in terms of timesheets or mm-hmm. you know, misreporting or even just to communicate in a way that's, that's easier for everybody. If you add up all of those costs together, then it's like, wow, we can't afford people to leave. And they're definitely leaving, right? Mostly because they're not seeing the next step in their growth path. Well, let me ask you um, to, are these steps applicable to uh, new hires as well? And I ask that because it seems that, you know, owners and hiring managers are becoming desperate. And I hate to use the phrase lower the bar, but they're looking at a, a perhaps um, uh, a new set of potential hires, you know, than they had in the past. Yeah. Uh, how do, how are these applicable to the new hires you're bringing in as well? Yeah, it's, it's critical. And in fact, um, you know, I, I've been quote unquote lowering the bar uh, for over a decade with employees <laughs> And, and um, honestly, it's, it's one of the coolest experiences I ever got to have in business. And when I look back about what did I really accomplish, um, you know, we, we sold a lot of contracts. We certainly helped a lot of customers' lives. Um, we made some good money for people and, and allowed some career opportunities. But to be honest, the only thing that really um, gets me excited about what I did was the job opportunities I was able to provide to people who were uh, formerly incarcerated, mm-hmm. who had overcome an addiction, who maybe had um, a disability or a disadvantaged background and couldn't get a job elsewhere. And, and by, you know, really lowering the bar on 
um, our requirements and moving towards more of an open hiring philosophy, we're able to provide a lot of opportunities for people who um, work super hard to create a better life for themselves and their families. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was phenomenal to do that. The challenge was the, the less work experience, the less professionalism, the more gaps in employment, um, you know, the, the bigger the, the gap in, in education uh, or experience, the more we had to up our game from a training and coaching and development standpoint. Mm-hmm. So today employers are saying, well, I don't have a choice. I got to hire the guy fresh out of jail with face tattoos. Mm-hmm. And I think it's wonderful if you can provide a home for people like that to work when, when every bank and McDonald's will shut them down and tell right. them they're not in society. I, you should be proud about where you're at right now. But in order to make it work, you're going to have to teach those people something. And um, in fact, I recently saw an open letter from the valedictorian of Yale University. Mm-hmm. That said basically the same thing because these Ivy League schools have through, you know, affirmative action type programs lowered the bar for applicants, right? They've gone into to neighborhoods to recruit students in an effort to increase diversity and inclusion who come from disadvantaged backgrounds. And this guy who graduated from Yale was saying, look, we're going into the workforce now and we're really glad that we're invited to be part of uh, the workforce, but we didn't grow up with the same opportunities. So rather than uh, attending a career coaching class, we missed out on things like dinner table conversations about how to act in a meeting right? because it it didn't exist in our family, in our neighborhood. And so future employer, you're going to have to teach us those things. Don't take it for granted that we know that because we didn't have the same experience. And I think this is what even in our industry, we can learn to do better is how to coach people for not just the job expectations, but the cultural expectations around what it's like to work for us. And when we do, people respond to that, but they just don't know coming in. Do you have any recommendations? I love this idea of, of widening your your nets and how you're casting your nets and looking for employees and and how there are a lot of perhaps diamonds in the rough out there. For sure. um, how, can any recommendations, perhaps books or programs um, that owners or hiring managers can reach out to to develop themselves in order to be better coaches to those who need more development and coaching? Yeah, you know, I'm um, a huge fan of John Maxwell's leadership stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've been certified with uh, to teach his material for years. And um, one of my favorite books by him is just called The 21 Laws of Leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a super practical, uh, very popular book. Easy way to help you start to reset how you think about the people around you. And um the other one by him I love is the five levels of leadership mm-hmm. and uh, it, it includes kind of a scoring rubric to figure out. So those are two books I'd recommend right away. Um, otherwise, you know, give me a call. I'd love to help you out on this journey because like I said, I think that we actually have an opportunity to make a difference and, and change the world. Even if just for, if you, even if we're only changing the world for an individual um, by providing, you know, the best possible place to work, regardless of 
where they come from. 